from deep within the primordial soup of brick bracks and knickknacks waiting to become art. My name is Gabe Wells, and this is the Saturated Life Podcast. Episode number six, the ornate, surreal sculptor. value personally in art and those things that I've always have been drawn to are you know works that are timeless that you know can always be appreciated you know just let alone by their form and just by um, the skill and the craftsmanship and just you know something that really leads you in and somehow there's some sort of um, you know soul or life in it and you know Making art, I think, you know, you have to have a certain value system to where you apply to your work. And I think that, you know, culminating all these things into one, you know, pretty much I felt was a good direction. And I think it was intuitive. And I think it was uh, something very sensitive to the old and the new and relying to the viewer the sense of that you understand it without, you know, some dubious conceptual jargon that has to go with it. So I think that it really just had to be, you know, these essential things that had to be present in order to, you know, come up with something that, you know, was, you know, to get people's attention and have people talk about it. And I think this is the overall intricacy and the detail uh, is something that anyone can appreciate. You know, I think it might be uh, a bit less for some people, but they still have an appreciation for it. So, what made you get into the the idea of like deities? I mean, like or, or ruins and so forth. What what draws you into that most of all? I love history quite a bit, and I think that um, that's something that we really have to pay attention to is is what has history done and. You know, it's that old saying that, you know, if we don't know our history, we're going to repeat it. And so I think it's really a matter of uh, giving this kind of iconic symbol that relates to history and historical. It always seems to have this sort of hieratic presence, meaning that there's some sort of important, visually interesting shape or form. And so I think it's... Uh, about, you know, translating this idea of, you know, this importance in this structure or importance in a particular form, you know, and so it's, it's, it's about that. What part of history do you like the most? Like, is there a certain era that you, uh, that you use most for your artwork? I, um, well, historically, I think Greek and Roman times are very important because, we can study the rise and fall mechanisms that happened with them. I think visually or artistically, I'm drawn to Renaissance and Baroque era the most. And so I think in just tying in all the aesthetics together, I think it's just important to um, piece together these, these different things that I'm influenced by and inspired by and, and somehow visually communicate that to the viewer 
to where they get it, you know, again, you know, without any sort of conceptual comments that need to be thrown in there. You know, just visually it can survive on its own as a visual communication key. Do you like the Roman era so much just because of the, it seems like kind of obvious correlations between our own culture and what, you know, kind of the endeavors we're in right now in modern society compared to their collapse and, and how, how it happened with them as well? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were a sophisticated civilization. They built incredible structures. I mean, they had challenges of engineering and overcame them. And, of course, they just amassed more power, more land, expanded their borders. You know, the largest civilization in the known world at the time, but yet being thinned out so far caused many problems economically. And historians have written so many reasons why. It really comes down to it's just a myriad of problems that, that, that happen, you know, not only just economically but also you know in defense means mm-hmm. and so it eventually dwindled down there was you know changes in religious perspectives and so things really morphed and you know it's, it's kind of contentious people could say that well Rome really never fell it just sort of morphed into these different things and it's some people common, say that right well, it's like common in society yeah. a lot of it like most most big uh, powers at the time, they didn't go away. Like England's still there. France is still there. That, that's kind of why I'm drawn to your work. Cause I do feel, I mean, I grew up in the nineties where everything was kind of, it was good. I, I really had no concerns. I mean, everything seemed like it was running smoothly. And now that I get to 35, I'm really part of I'm Like I could be part of the boom and the uh, crash era. It is. And it is a really amazing time to live. And just, you, know, you have to consider yourself lucky to see and watch and, uh, observe all this what's happening and um you know it just comes down to this vital question that we've always asked ourselves is that you know are we smart enough to save ourselves are we well i think the question is yes we are smart enough but you know whether we make the correct actions in, in doing so to avoid disaster that's that's another question yeah you, know, you can see in micro examples in world history, like such as uh, Easter Island, you know the place of these fantastic head sculptures. Yeah, they their population rose and rose, and knew that the resources of the island weren't enough to sustain their population. They knew mm-hmm. it, but yet they really couldn't make or put together the right steps to avoid it, and they pretty much uh, had had uh, declined into you know just a very small tribal set. So. Yeah, yeah, they like, used oh, yeah. up all their trees, wasn't it? They just cut down all their trees, just used up everything there. Yeah, I, I read that too. I found that really interesting. It, it's a good. It's I like that premise more than the aliens planted the heads. Uh, <laughs> though the aliens right. planting the heads is kind of more exciting, um, but it's it's got it's nice to get facts in there. There are movements out there that think that uh, there was some alien influence in early man and some of the early monuments. It, it seems too impossible that. Mankind could have made them with the the technology they had at the day, but the show ancient aliens explains all that. So it's interesting to watch that and ponder it. It's really you know some of these structures and city ruins around the world, you know, have this evidence of the technology is just mind blowing. You know, laser cut precision detail of these rocks 
you know, and you, yeah. you can't think that mankind back then with chicken bones could really do that, but it's certainly, certainly open for debate. Yeah, exactly. I'm, of course, I don't know. I, it's kind of fun to think that it would be aliens. Um, I'm a skeptic all around, but man, I totally love alien things. I will watch alien shows all the time. I'll watch the UFO videos on YouTube. 99% bullshit most of the time, but there's some that you look at and it seems weird. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so much out there. And as far as eyewitnesses, you know, I've even seen some strange things. And really? Even out here in Kansas talking to farmers, uh, Recently, last year, I met this guy, and he said, yeah, this farmer over here back in the 70s had some weird things happen to his cattle. Tongues were cut out, and they had these really weird, like, circles cut out of their their flesh. And, you know, it totally feeds into the whole cattle mutilation thing where, you know, for some reason, these cattle uh, have these laser-cut precision parts cut out of them, and... You know, no blood, you know, no evidence of, like, struggle or anything, and certainly not done by predators or coyotes or anything. Opens up a whole, you know, scientific investigation, but yet it falls into that taboo as well. It's like, oh, well, you know, it can't be aliens doing that. You know, that's just far too, that's just too far-fetched, you know. What's funny is that you know, people in reaction to the loss of these cattle, and they think, well, it's just, cattle, whatever, you know, these things happen to them. But, you know, it turns out that these farmers that own these cattle spent thousands of dollars on these prized cattle, and now they're dead. And, you know, the insurance isn't going to reimburse them. You know, they're just going to be laughed at by local authorities, and, you know, mainstream doesn't doesn't quite embrace it. It's just sort of still in the, the dark ages of scientific inquiry. So Now, I'm really interested in hearing about your experience, because i got to tell you, very honestly, I had an experience in Epping, New Hampshire, where I lived there when I was in the sixth grade. Actually, three experiences. Would you Would you be okay wow. with sharing your experience? Yeah, I just had one experience. It's probably two or three years ago. I was just out on a walk, um, and I just happened to look up that night, and I noticed this fairly bright star. And then I looked at a star next to it, and I was thinking that, you know, that, that star is significantly brighter than the other one. Mm-hmm. But right then, that that bright star, which was just, you know, still, still as can be, all of a sudden, it's shot north, and it did at the same time. And so I thought, how can a stationary object like that all of a sudden dim in luminosity and then shoot north? like that, like, like, you know, very high velocity. And so I was really, yeah, I wasn't really you know, struck by it, but I thought, wow, that's very peculiar. You know, you think like, well, you can see satellites or you can see airplanes, but, you know, there's a, there's a slow-moving, steady path to it, but, you know, you don't see stationary objects then lose luminosity and then shoot to, the, you know, particular directions, you know, just on a yeah. whim, so... Very similar to my experience, one of them. And um, the only reason I question mine is because I was in the sixth grade and I did watch a lot of UFO things at that time. I was really into it. So I didn't know if it was my mind playing tricks on me. But this is one that is really actually very hard to say that it was playing tricks on me. So I'm, I was always the last one to go to sleep in my home. 
and I'd be up watching TV. And uh, on this, on the, uh, there was windows, you know, by the TV, and there was lights that were uh, maybe like 100 to 200 feet off the ground, really going what seemed like 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, and we're talking maybe 300 feet from my home, maybe not even. So I got up and looked out the window and was amazed, right? You it, it couldn't really see too much because it was really dark and the lights weren't really that bright. And um, the weird part is, is once I got up and looked at it, I only saw it, I only stared at it for maybe a matter of seconds and then turned around without thinking, sat back on the couch, started watching TV like nothing was wrong until maybe a couple, I don't know, maybe like five seconds later. I don't even know how much time, but it popped me. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? What? And I looked out my other window, the big glass one by my couch, and I saw the thing just hover above the trees across the street, across over my neighbor's house, and just slowly drift off into the distance. How creepy is that? Yeah, how do you explain that? I don't know, but I tell yeah. myself because I'm a skeptic. I try to be a skeptic, and it, it just falls apart a lot of times with, with certain experiences. Yeah, you would think that if you're younger, you're actually kind of more innocent in your, like, judgments and perceptions, you know? It's like you seem to be you seem to be more open to what you're really seeing or, you know, less filtered about what you're seeing, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, I think that's a really legitimate observation you made there. Yeah, I had one other experience when I was young, probably, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe ten, somewhere in there. It was a it was early evening, kind of twilight time, and I we lived out in the country, and there was these row of trees around our house, and I was just sort of wandering around, you know, not doing much, and uh, behind this row of trees, there were some other older trees that had been knocked over, and I was lo- looking out beyond the trees, and I, I swore I saw some very bizarre-looking face just staring right back at me. Ooh. And this face didn't look... It was sort of like human-like, but, you know, I could tell it wasn't human. And, you know, it just had this very, very strange feeling of just this thing was just staring at you. I really... Uh, I couldn't quite tell what it was because, you know... It, there wasn't much light, and you know, it, it just really felt like that is really bizarre, with whatever this thing is. And it looked very symmetrical. It looked kind of like your typical gray is what they look like, where it's a sort of a diamond-shaped head with these two large black eyes. And it's, it's very similar to that. And so instead of being courageous enough to go closer, I decided to run back in the house and grab my binoculars. And then when I returned, just shortly later I, I wasn't able to locate it or, or find it again so that was really bizarre it's just sort of a thing where you just you didn't know what that was and you felt very um, kind of an incriminating feeling that you know something was staring you down but yet you couldn't know what it was and you couldn't find it again and Ooh, yeah and then you feel all creeped out so yeah so who that- knows in Kansas, I mean, you live in Kansas right now, still. I mean, like, we're, how rural is, is the area you live in? Well, I live in a town that's about 25,000 people. Uh, it's about halfway between Kansas City and Denver. Okay. And so, you know, it's, it's not a tiny town, but it's not, you know, a city by any means. You know, it's, it's, it's a fairly reasonable, you know, small town. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't really... Other than that one experience that I 
seen on that walk out here. I guess, you know, historically, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there were newspaper headlines about UFOs being seen in the area. And so there is some UFO history out here. And also in Kansas, there's uh, reports of um, people being paralyzed mm. uh, during UFO sightings. Uh, there's been abductions, apparently, like uh, like um, there was some out in western Kansas, like a couple of decades ago, there was some report of people driving in these cars, experienced uh, missing time, like two or three hours missing from from them that they can't explain. So it's, I don't know, I think it's a worldwide thing that's happening, but I don't know if humans are just hardwired not to be scientifically inquisitive about it. I mean, there is a, a large percent of the population that is, but as far as it being embraced by the government or the mass media, you know, it's, it's really, you know, not, not something that's taken seriously. And there does, because there doesn't seem to be much hard evidence for it. That's the problem. There doesn't seem, except for like the cattle. I mean, that's pretty hard evidence, I guess. But for sightings, there's, there's yeah. video, I suppose, but there's nothing that, there's nothing that uh, you can really pinpoint. And, and plus the, the concept of it, like the whole concept that there could be uh, another, another race coming to our planet from wherever in our, in our uh, galaxy, I'm assuming, um, is one so threatening, and two, unlike anything we could really imagine, you know, we can't really even fathom it. Like scientists are saying that it's impossible to do that type of travel, but what the heck do they know? That I mean, a hundred years ago, they would they wouldn't have predicted that we had an iPhone. You know, like iPhones would have been crazy, crazy talk. Like you're telling me that you can get all the information in the world on this little iPhone device that would have blown people's minds back then. So who knows? Maybe there's some kind of intergalactic travel in our future as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure there is. I'm sure there's technology that's, that's able to do that. And I think that if you think about, say, if you were here in the 1900s, early 1900s, and if someone told you that, you know, within 70 years, we'll land on the moon, you know, that's, that would have been a very outrageous thing to say, but yet we were able to do that. And so you, you can't really... Uh, you, you you can't really underestimate technology. I mean, technology is something that grows exponentially, and I think technology nowadays is uh, it, it's a big positive thing in our life, but it's also a very uncontrollable thing as well. I mean, our technology kind of surpasses our uh, abilities in some way. It surpasses our morality. It really gets us into trouble, yet we rely on it so much. And it's, you know, I think nowadays to such a vulnerable extent that if we didn't have technology, you know, how, how would we survive? How would we revert back to uh, uh, a very simple Stone Age way of living? You know, that was yeah. very terrible, very hard for people to adjust to. This interview would not be happening. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think that humans are pretty, you know, they're pretty resilient dealing with tragedies and uh, calamities that happen, you know, in the present time. But if you tell somebody that, you know, there's an impending doom far into the future, perhaps decades away, 
you know, they, they don't really make decisions or actions to avert that. They just, no. you know, it's not really, it's not something they really understand or, or, or think about. And so when it comes, you know, of course they're not prepared. And so you know, it just goes back to, you know, you know how, how are humans hardwired, you know, do they, do they understand these things? Are they smart enough to figure it out before it happens, or do they just have to live with the consequences when it does? Like you said, people, we're not, our brains actually, neurologists actually said this, our brains aren't set up for these long-term predictions. We can't fathom the idea that something like um, climate change or global warming is really an impending doom for us. <laughs> it, a lot of people don't don't mm-hmm. buy into it. Well, I think climate change is, is a very prevalent thing, and that's you know the biggest thing that we'll have to deal with. And politically, it doesn't work because climate change, of course, is going to have to affect a lot of you know energy, economic aspects, and you know when you are a huge uh, energy allegoric uh, thing, you know, you, you don't want to hear this sort of thing. You don't want to uh, have to think that, you know, you're going to have to uh, drill less oil. You're going to have to uh, curb emissions. You know, it just doesn't work economically for them. And so it makes sense that they would put propaganda out there that uh, climate change is just a, ho- uh, a hoax and it's um, not real. But that you know, we're, we're somehow fed to that we should listen to politicians about climate change rather than scientists. Weird, right? Yeah, a huge percentage of climate scientists around the world say that, yes, global warming is happening. Then, you know, why, why aren't we listening to them? Why, why is it filtered through, uh, you know, political means, you know, politicians who have some sort of footing into the corporate uh, oligarchy. So it's really, really an unfortunate thing. It's, it's really a, a trial for us, it really is. It is. It's a trial by fire. Yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I, I figured just looking at your artwork, I knew that you had a lot of interesting uh, opinions. And, and um... Yeah, and I think that's just the part of being an artist, is that you're, you're really sensitive to certain clues going on out there. You really... Uh, aware of, you know, what's authentic and what isn't. And I think it's just uh, a really great thing for society to have artists because they're the ones that see things differently and are able to relate things. You know, their craft being with the visual, so they're able to communicate visually, and which I think is very important because it doesn't rely on language you know, anyone around the world can look at a particular work of art and understand what it's saying. And so I think it's a, it's a very good, you know, really is the earliest form of communication. You know, you think about early man making cave drawings inside these caves and communicating to each other just through these simple graphics. You know, it's, it's a very uh, primal way of, of sharing ideas and thoughts and I think it's just, you know, you have to think of artists as, you know, they're servants to mankind, 
you know, for the benefit of mankind. So I think something that, um, I don't know if I consciously chose to be an artist. I just knew that it was going to happen. And I was going to go in that direction, and that's essentially what I had to do. And it's, I really enjoy being able to do it and have a large group of people see it, you know, all over the world. And you know, it keeps expanding, and collectors get to, uh, notice the work and. So I, I'm I'm able to keep going, keep sustaining what I'm doing, and it's a really great, great thing for me. Yeah, what was it like? I want to get into some of your past. If that's okay, like the, growing up in Kansas. I mean, you're you're a very accomplished artist. I mean, really intricate, like paintings as well. I mean, you're a great painter. What was it like growing up in the rural Kansas and not having basically basically any kind of art? I'm assuming not not too much art around you. Yeah, it wasn't really until I went to college that I really was exposed to any kind of art. Uh, I think I was more just interested in nature. You know, that was kind of my my big passion. I'd love to draw things of nature. Uh, I was really into biology. But, you know, not getting, not until getting to, into college, you know, being exposed to, you know, other art historical things, you know, did it really start cooking and you know I realized that you know it's not really you're not subject to where you live anywhere in the world you know you're you're subject to what resources you can somehow pull in and you know with technology you're able to see things all over the world you know through a little computer screen but then you have the technology to transport yourself to various parts of the world and be influenced by what you see. And so I I realized that, you know, there's these stereotypes about the Midwest or Kansas and that, you know, it's a very um, non-progressive, very backwards place to be. But, you know, it's, it's surprising to think that, you know, there are some pretty substantial people that come from here that, you know, are very well accomplished and very, you know, globally recognized so it's it's kind of a you know it's something I don't think about too much. You know I think that it's funny to be on an art show and you know, like in New York or somewhere and people ask me where I'm from and I tell them and just seeing their reaction from it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's pretty entertaining. But that was my reaction. Time, just, yeah, it just goes back to that that uh, thing that you know artists are unconventional. They do break stereotypes. You know, it's 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 really about going against the grain, being unusual. And I think it's maybe for someone like me, maybe it is more important to be in places where, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, to really have, you know, the right kind of influence. Maybe you should be out of your element. You should be out of your comfort zone. But actually being a Kansas, uh, actually is very central to every show that I do. And so it's the same direction or the same distance in any direction of any show that I do. So I'm in the middle of something that I would do in New York as compared to something in LA or Seattle or Portland or Miami or Toronto. And so it's really worked out as a central hub in that way. But it's, it's, it does have its convenience 
but you know, it's you know, it's not uh, Europe where I'd like to be to see you know very old Gothic cathedrals or Baroque structures. But you know, it's, it's, you studied in Europe for a while, right? You went to you studied in Florence. Yeah, I learned uh, old master painting techniques, which is a lot of fun. I saw lots of great art and museums and really amazing experience. Um, but yeah, I go to Europe about every year or so and sort of get re-energized by what's there. Where do you go when you go over there? Um, typically somewhere between Switzerland and Germany or um, Italy or England. Um I've been most I've been to most of those Western European places. Um been to the Czech Republic. I went back to Hungary sometime, uh maybe down farther south or maybe into Turkey. So there's there's lots of other places I like to go. Well my my wife has a brother who lives there in Switzerland, so you know, we've we've gone to visit him. Uh, my wife has also lived in Germany before, so she has friends and family that live there. And so uh, it's just fun to go there and just uh, see old cities, see old architecture, uh, drive through the country, stop in little villages and towns. So it's really just about, you know, seeing these old structures and the culture and just uh, just the whole experience is just really amazing. But I I typically like to make it to some of the larger cities that have very old historical structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think Rome pretty much tops the list as far as that. Rome is a really intense place to be. Really enjoy every time I've been there. What is it that that keeps you in Kansas um, besides like being central? Is there is there a certain thing about it that you're like I, I just, is it just your family's there or something like that or I think it's interesting because here in Kansas you know there's not much distraction there's not much um, things going on that's going to keep you away from your studio you know so it's actually a really good place to make art okay yeah I found out and there's actually a huge concentration of artists that live here um, let me jump back a little bit here because I do want to mentioned your painting though your paintings are you actually have a portrait in the smithsonian is that right uh yeah it was a part of this national portrait show so it was a it was a competitive exhibition this was back in 2006 and they've done it uh i think it's every three years since then but uh so this first one that they had there were over four thousand submissions nationwide and they only selected 51 so uh, I chose this small portrait. It was very small, six by six inches, and it's of a, a homeless man that I know who, who lives here in town. His name is George, and so it was really delightful to to get into that show and make George a little bit more famous than he is. So, so yeah, I've done that, and yeah, I've done some other portraiture, and uh, of course, I work with acrylic, which is a very difficult medium. And so I think I was always drawn to that challenge. Yeah. I just started working with acrylic. Any tips for people transitioning from oil to acrylic? I think it's just, you know, 
this experiment, um, I'm kind of a purist, and I don't add any mediums or any other sorts of additives to the paint. It's just the paint by itself oh, with okay. water. You know, um, I do a lot of thin layers of application, a lot of glazes. Okay. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a purist in that sense. But, of course, what you're painting on uh, makes the paint react differently. Um, if you're painting on a gesso panel, that acts differently than a gesso canvas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's not a real... I guess um, predictive thing, you know, acrylic is very difficult to work with because it dries so fast. So you have to be very quick with it. Um, but I, I think you can achieve some pretty amazing things. You can get quite the same warm luminosity as you can see with oil painting. But then again, the longevity with acrylics is that it is synthetic and not organic, and so it's not going to darken or crack or yellow. Okay. Like oil eventually will, and so it's. Um, I think there's advantages with the medium. Um, I think it's right for our age of technology in that you know it is synthetic and sort of fits with the times. Um, and it's not a very old medium. You know, it's it's not really not much older than 60-some years old. And yeah. so it's a fairly new medium that's out there. And, of course, oil has been around for centuries. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what the, its full ability is. And there are always engineering different uh, mixtures of acrylic, too. And so there's some really good blends out there, and there's some that aren't so much. But... I found even some of the cheap acrylics that are out there can really achieve some really amazing results with. And so it's it's really just playing with the medium a lot, um, different surfaces, you know, like a lot of different textural things. So it's just a fun medium. And that's what I use to paint my sculptures with. So it's good to have that knowledge. And- I was going to say, how did you uh, transition from from the painting to doing these like mixed mixed media type of sculptures that you do? Well, as a teenager, I was really into building models. As a child, I was really into building Legos. And so I was always this builder. Like, I just loved to build things, build things. And, you know, painting was, you know, it, it sort of fulfilled some artistic fantasies and needs but when it came to really I think getting in touch with who I was artistically it came to building things in the mid 90s I had a bunch of these model parts and things that I had collectibles and just on a whim I decided to make an assemblage with them and so probably in 1995 I made my first one I put it all together and then I painted it with acrylic and you know, the result was really, really neat. Um, my painting instructor really liked it. So I, you know, I didn't think much of it. I didn't really thought it was, you know, that big of a deal. But, uh, you know, I had friends that kept uh, inspiring me to do more. And so probably not till like 2004 that I really 
took it seriously and started doing some more and the response just kept getting you know, more positive and bigger and pretty soon by 2006 I was showing these in galleries and the response was really great and so it just ended up that I was able to sell everything I was making and uh, getting collectors interested and being able to sell things you know very consistently and I just opened up the whole world for me that this impulse to build was being sustained and I didn't have to do anything else other than just make art and it's really been quite a nice wave I've been writing since so your 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 sculptures are so intricate. I don't think you could express those ideas that you're 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 getting done with your sculptures through painting. I don't. And I think, you know, for for painters, it's a very sedentary thing where you either have, you're confined to it, you have to sit in front of it, you know, or stand in front of it, you know. With with sculpture, you know, you have to move around and go retrieve things and augment things. You have to over to a machine and make cuts and or, or sand it. You have to run over here and find some other part. And so it's, it's a whole experience where you're just on the move. And so I, I think I really enjoy just being on the move and also, you know, jumping in the car, driving across town to get one particular part that I need or driving three or four hours to send or to get a whole bunch of stuff or, it's it's a whole experience of just retrieving. It's like a, a big scavenger hunt. That's what I wanted to ask like you too. Of, How do you find all these pieces? Like, what what are these pieces? Like, are they just common models? Or are they? Uh, can you give a little explanation of like this kind of treasure hunt that you're on? Like, where do you find all these intricate pieces? Yeah, it's, yeah. A lot of it is you know model parts. You know, models come in like these different parts. So you have to glue together. But you know, I see the possibilities of you know not gluing them together the way they should be conventionally, but, you know, kit bashing them, combining them with other kits and parts. But other materials would be like wood, that um, like crown molding or ceiling medallions, you know, things for home decorating purposes. I'll use those, cut them up, make interesting arrangements. I pretty much work from big to small, so I'll build the, the frame or the, the shelf structure that everything will be fixated upon and then work in the biggest and major element of it and then reduce it down to just the tiny fine filament that I'm adding in towards the very end. And so it's it's really a whole bunch of stuff, um, not just models, but just random collectibles, very uh, minute things for detailing, like for model railroading, or just overall architectural modeling. Uh, it's really just about seeing the possibility in all these materials. I'll use jewelry, too. Um, some things that are for, like, uh, home furnishings, you know, statuaries. Uh, I mean, you name it. Wow. Yeah, typically I like to stick with lighter weight material. Because these things can get pretty weighty, but uh, I have to be very conscious of weight and practicality of handling the things because they they look very um, you know they don't look very user friendly. So it's kind of a challenge. It's been a kind of a challenge to use uh, the right 
means to move them, to ship them around. Oh, yeah. So I've gotten really good at, like, building crates for them. Huh. Um, yeah, so it's it's an ongoing learning experience. You know, I'm always trying to challenge myself, make larger pieces or make as small a piece as I can. So it's it's really... Really a fun challenge. What's your work regimen like? How, like, how long would a uh, a common sculpture of yours, like an average sculpture, like how long would that take? And and how many hours a day do you work? How many days a week? I pretty much work every day. I usually take one day off and hang out with my family. Uh, but most of the time, I work you know at least ten or twelve hours a day, with a few breaks here and there. Uh, I could probably get um, like a good medium size piece done within a month if I have everything. Uh, I do realize that there are some parts I need as I'm working on them, and so I sort of order things throughout working on them. And there's also that challenge of waiting for the parts to arrive. You know, if I have to get a piece done within three days, but there's something still being shipped that won't be here for two days, so it could be a really orchestral challenge of of time and making it all come together in time for the deadline so it's really a big challenge that way but it's uh just a part of the journey and you have a you have a family you have you have kids uh we have a wife we have a son together also have a stepdaughter uh, nice how old is your son he lived probably my son is um about 19 months old oh excellent i have a 17 month old yeah great Oh, great. Congratulations. Yeah. What's it like? Because uh, I guess so now I was going to ask if he was old enough that you were just taking his model parts. Like, I'm sorry. So on that, that would work great with what I'm working on. I'll buy you another one later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He loves my studio. He loves looking through everything. Yeah. You know, is it challenging? Really? Is it? Does he? Because like my son just grabs everything. I, I actually can't work on anything around him because he just wants to grab. He's very hands on with everything. Is he just... When he's in your studio, does he constantly just grab every, all your little pieces and move them all around and everything? Yeah, but I, I, I think it's a part of the experience. Like, you know, they're they're very sensory and touch-oriented, so yeah. you know, I think it's it's an important part of you know, them being able to connect with, you know, what objects are like in the material world. So I think it's just a, a sense of that. You know, he just wants to investigate everything because he's seeing everything for the first time yeah. in his life. So it's exciting. I think it's, uh, I think that, yeah, I think he's going to be a very, uh, uh, you know, a good mechanical reasoning kind of person just with this experience of having me as a father. And so, and he's, you know, he'll have this uh, cultural influence from me and art influence. So it's really good. It's like a, it's like a big, lifelong experiment you know yeah so it's all about you know the influence and guidance and uh it's a really fun journey i think it's going to be pretty amazing yeah and i, I hope this quick i can cut things out so I, I hope this question isn't too personal but like i read that you had an, your dad wasn't really around and i just want to know like how how does that affect you now with your kid i mean do you because I, I didn't have a great father either i had a pretty crappy father but then that whole experience made me appreciate my son so much more and uh just wondering if you if you have that a, a similar kind of a feeling or experience about that 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a, a father who pretty much left not long after I was born. In fact, denied that I was his son. He um, was fond of some other woman, so he left for her. And so my mother raised me, and I have two older brothers, so she raised us on her own. Uh, she did have uh, a husband probably in my earlier years who was alcoholic. You know, there was some abuse there. Um, then she married another gentleman who was alcoholic as well, but he wasn't abusive. So, but, you know, not really, you know, a cultured person by any means. And so mm-hmm. that was a kind of a challenge with that. But, you know, when it came around to having my own son, what I realized was that, you know, I, I won't correct any mis- mistakes that, you know, my father made. And mm-hmm. so, obviously, I want to be there, you know, a nurturing force for my son, but also name-wise. So, my name, Cooksey, as it's spelled, K-U-K-S-I, is, is augmented from my original spelling, which is C-O-O-K-S-E-Y. Okay. And so I've used that as a, an artistic moniker, you know, kind of adaptation of my name. But when it came to having my son Isaac, it's like I wanted to divorce that original Cooksey name relating to my father. So it's like yeah. a new Isaac. And so it's like eliminating that negative historical part of of what was in my family and starting with something new. So it's, it's kind of a new sort of makeshift family that I've been able to come up with. So That's excellent. That was the you know, big reasoning behind that. Yeah, I, I totally... Okay. I mean, I see, I see so much development in my son at such an early age, and I... I remember what it was like growing up with a with a father that was just primarily just an asshole and how much that really affects and, and creates this so many obstacles growing up, so many obstacles when you're maturing at, at these essential times. And seeing my son now and, and just seeing like how pure and how innocent kids are and they're just a sponge and it's like the idea that some people can just write it off, like your dad just left and said, this isn't, you know, I'm not even paying attention to this person or my dad was just an asshole and just can write... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I think it gives me a deep appreciation, I guess, having a, a shitty childhood and, and having, you know, an awesome little son now. It gives me a deep appreciation for him. Yeah, um, I was going to suggest uh, there's this really great documentary that's out there in the last year or so. It's called Absent. And this gentleman made a documentary all about the aspect of people growing up without their fathers. So with high divorce rates, you know, separation happening. You know, there's a a lot of people out there growing up without fathers, without a father figure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a very interesting show to watch. And they interview a lot of famous people, also other people who've had problems with uh, crime throughout their lives and how Mm -hmm. uh, their influence not having a father figure growing up really played into that. So you have to think that, you know, what what you're consciously aware of and not having a father, you 
you know, how that's affecting your behavior and what you're doing in life, you know, what your what your patterns are, you know, how you dealt with it with you know, and feeling that absence. And so it's a it's a really good show. I'd really recommend it. Yeah, absent. check it out. Definitely check it out. Did you did you have like a troubled childhood? Did you cause any mischief or trouble? Were you No, I was uh, very well behaved. And there's a few things in high school that were kind of rebellious towards my parents, but that also played into their religious personalities. They were really strict Catholic and it seemed like their religious life was far more important than anything else. Okay. You know, and it came down to affection as well for for me, and I felt that you know, this religious presence was a result of a, a very cold, non-affectionate, kind of authoritative presence. And I really reacted to that. And I I really was very, very critical of, of religion because of that. And not only just because of that, but just in, in general. And so it, it really played uh, heavily on me and you know, not not until you really get outside of that perspective and sort of look back to you, do you really start seeing what happens? Yeah, you, yeah. Because you created a sculpture, the like church tank. What was church tank about? That was that seems pretty obvious, huh? Just the uh, warfare through religious ideologies or something like that. Oh yeah, of course. You know, it's there's very strong, influential, organized religious things out there and they are very military like, you know, they I mean not just missionaries that go into indigenous tribes, you know, that indoctrinate these people or you know, just influence politically, you know, there's marginalization of women, there's, you know, a whole myriad of things that pretty much strangle a lot of, you know, very humanitarian aspects and so I felt creating this had a powerful statement but you know in a comical way you know it wasn't really overtly no maybe it is I don't know but <laughs> I think it's, it's sort of a sort of a, a funny way of communicating I think that people get it when they see it absolutely know? yeah so you don't go to church anymore you grew up in a catholic family and you're no longer in church no, I'm completely devoid in any, of any religious practice or thought. I, you know, I'm just too, you know, too skeptical, but also realize that any doctrinization that you get yourself into eventually rejects something else, and I just don't think that's good for humanity in any broad spectrum. You know, that's. If if you get into any sort of religious belief, you know it always it ultimately has something to do with judgment towards some other group or some sort of behavior that's very human. And so you you can't. I realize that you just can't um, put yourself into any mold. You know you have to be very uh, open and also skeptical. And so it's it's really. You know, so many people around the world that can be so uh, fixed in certain beliefs, but yet you know, none of it's ever 
None of it's ever in tune with the greater, you know, welfare of humanity. It's it's always something that's holding something back. You know, it's it really just. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with what's originally wanting to be a part of. You know, I think it's just ultimately judging the human behavior and the human form for its own animal side to it. Yeah. Yeah, I find that the the people that accuse other religions of certain things, that they're actually guilty of the same thing. And so I find that certain political parties that are very... Uh, very critical of certain religious beliefs, you know, are so similar that it's just you know, very apparent. And so I have to think that, you know, when you're accusing somebody of something, you know, is it really because you're not able to come to terms with that you are guilty of that as well? And, you know, I think that, I think that, um, Cultures and beliefs should be preserved because I think it's a very important part of contribution to humanity. But I think that we do need to have limitations on where those influences go. Like I, I, you know, don't agree with pretty much any religion, major religious belief, but. I don't want to take away somebody else's religious belief in doing so. So I think it's everyone's right to believe what they want to believe, but of course you need to have limitations on where that goes. And so whenever there's some religious person that comes to my door, uh, I'm always ready to like challenge them on what they believe. <laughs> I think it's, I think you know it's it's a civic duty to do so because you know I think that I always want to be challenged for what I believe and I think that it should be reciprocal and so I think it's just you have to you have to keep this ongoing philosophical discussion going on no matter what in your life. I think so too. I think yeah. too. Ever ever come to any sort of absolute absolute beliefs in anything is just a danger. I think you should always question what you believe and you, know, you shouldn't remain comfortable just because certain beliefs that work for you and realizing that that influence is causing some harm or negativity to somebody else in your life. And so I think it's very, very important to be very conscious of of what you're believing and what influencing you you're you're having towards others. One hundred percent agree. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find so you don't have any religious practice? You don't. Um, what do you do? You find uh, you live in Kansas. So, I mean, what about staring up in the night sky? Do you get that sense of awe? Do you ever have the sense that there there could be something bigger than or outside of the reality that we know of? Well, that just comes down to you know how is that humanly defined? You know. We have to think about, you know, if we think of something that's bigger and greater than ourselves, you know, is it, is it really that, or is it just that we're just a part of some big, great thing already? You know, are we just hardwired to think that there is something out there that has more power than us, so we have to remain small and 
uh, non-accomplished. So I guess that I, th- I think that there is more inquiry into how the universe works, you know, looking at the micro worlds of how cells divide or how uh, magnetic forces work. You know, I think going into that, you know, going into a scientific mindset towards the the perspective of just needing to know is, you know, the closest we can get to really finding something that, you know, is, is that void that we're always trying to, to, to seek. So I think that understanding how just things in the universe work, you know, I think there is a force that's in living organisms. You know, there is some sort of inherent knowledge that's working there. You know, there is something to genetics. There is something to uh, the body's healing nature, you know, but I just don't think it's, you know, religiously, authoritatively founded. You know, I, I don't think that answers the questions. I think that you know, religion has worked to just sort of give these sort of falsehoods about explaining it, but, you know, that's, I think there are some pretty amazing things that happen in our lives. And I, I, I certainly would be very thankful for the things that happen in my life, but you know, I think that you you can never really uh, claim that you possess those things or you own those things or you think that you have to know those things or tell other people what those things are. I think that you just have to always be open and you know be inquisitive and you know. You go with what your feeling is, and just realize that you know we're all so different, and you have to respect others and how they view life in the universe. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. That's good. so. You don't, you don't. When like you're when you're creating artwork, is it? I mean, do you do you feel like it is completely derived from you, or do you feel like you are tapping into some? Um, something like like some collective conscious, some kind of um, I don't want to say spiritual, or maybe spiritual. Do you, do you ever feel like you're tapping into something like you're a conduit of of something creating, uh, maybe not a message, but a work of art? Yeah, I think that's what creating is. You know, tapping into something that is that force or that presence, and uh, it's like you sort of. Um, you know, like waves in an ocean, you somehow are in sync with those waves and you, you move with it, I think is the same sort of thing. And I think that everyone should have time for creative solitude. And I think it's a, a very, uh, you know, spiritual thing, but being non-religious, I think it's a very... Uh, good experience just for your physical self and your mental self and mental clarity. I think it's, uh, you know, something that's very vital. And I think that's, you know, missing for a lot of people yeah. these days, you know, not really encouraged out there. So you, know, you hear people talk like, well, I just, 
I haven't found my thing, or I'm just looking for something to fill this thing that I feel. And you know, I think that if we can all find something creative to do, you know, just to feel good about something that you're a part of, or you know, something that's you know, it sync with what you, you feel inside, and I think that's you know what a lot of people need. Yeah. And I think music uh, does that as well. You know, musicians yes. yeah. certainly tap into things. Um, there are really amazing modes of music that, you know, it's hard to explain. Yeah. I mean, just having the ability to create music is a really fascinating thing. You know, something we don't really think about, but, you know, to listen to, like, a really amazing score of music thinking that somebody created that and yet it sounds so perfect. It baffles me. I have no clue how music is created. I love music. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world, but I have no, I'm completely ignorant and it blows me away. Do you ever get jealous of musicians and think, why can't a a fine artist, like a a visual artist create the same kind of enthusiasm in people that music does? Because music will just create a crowd in unison Jumping, you know, like you'll create a crowd just cheering. And I know. It's yeah. an amazing form of energy. I find that listening to music really helps my artwork because it's, you know, somehow getting your, your whole brain involved. You know, your, you know, part of your brain is really active with the art thing, but I think with another input going along with it, you know, it really just brings the whole thing together. And I think that I, it really made some good influence on the works of art I made just from the music I was listening to at the time. Yeah. That outside influence and really energizing really, really helps. What do you, uh, what do you listen to? I listen to a lot of uh, electronic stuff. I'm really into dubstep things. But then I'll listen to a lot of like classic rock or classical or something very uh, chant-oriented, all kinds of things. But I really like the really, yeah, I like a lot of the dubstep things happening because it's such crazy, erratic stuff, but yet it's just somehow so harmonious to my ears. And I, I think it just hap- it just goes with making the kind of art that I make, that it's just okay. so frantic and erratic but yet it's dynamic and samples other genres of music in with it and so it's it's really i think it's a really good pair but i think to appreciate so many different kinds of musical genres i think is a good thing yeah uh, i think it's always good to be listening to what's out there definitely i really appreciate you taking my call and this i think this conversation was really interesting i, I really appreciate it That's been really enjoyable. Thanks so much, Gabe.